Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla from downtown Los Angeles, coming to you from the International Buddhist Meditation Center. This past Saturday, I found myself in Thousand Oaks, California, giving a presentation to yoga teachers on Buddhist meditation, why and how. It was well received. I had a good time. I was invited by Kara Reed and Erica Bryant to speak to the to the teachers, and uh, so that's coming up right now, and I hope you find it interesting and useful as well. Catch you on the other side. So, uh, let me just really quickly, if you, if you haven't studied Buddhism at all, uh, the Buddha was a Hindu. And uh, just like Jesus was a Jew, and the Buddha died a Hindu, but after he died, then there was something called Buddhism. And, and the Buddha was a reformer in the same way Martin Luther was a reformer. And, and he didn't like some of the stuff that he found in Hinduism. And uh, so he used a lot of the same words, a lot of the Sanskrit words, but gave them a different meaning. Uh, he's, uh, it was about 2,500 years ago. He was a prince. Um, he was married at 16. Uh, he achieved enlightenment at 35. And he taught until he died at the age of 80. And what he taught uh, was uh, why human beings suffer and how to end that suffering. But I find most people in Southern California don't suffer enough. <laughs> so, so he also taught how to be happy. And, and what I find, if I'm speaking to people under 40, I talk about how to be happy. And if I speak to people over 40, I talk about how not to suffer. But it's the same message. He said we need to do two things. We need to have two kinds of practice. We need to have a precept practice, and we need to have a meditation practice. Now, precept practice in Buddhism means this. We accept the five training precepts of a Buddhist. They are, I will avoid taking life. I will avoid taking what is not given. I will avoid sexual misconduct. I will avoid telling lies. I will avoid consuming intoxicants. Those are the five training precepts of a Buddhist. Those precepts are designed to change what we say and what we do. The next practice is meditation practice, and that is designed to change how we think. It is literally designed to change and transform our consciousness. Karma consists of speech, action, and intention. So you can see between the two Buddhist practices of precept practice and meditation practice, our ultimate goal is to change our karma. In Buddhism, what's being reborn lifetime after lifetime is not a soul. The Buddha said, we don't have a soul, but if you do, I'm not going to talk you out of it. He said, what's being reborn is our karmic energy, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. 
And as a Buddhist, what we want to do is end our karma. If we can end our karma, we will never have to be reborn again. Every time we are reborn as a Buddhist, we have to get old, we have to get sick, and we have to die. So if we can figure out a way to exist without birth, then we'll never have to get sick, we'll never have to get old, and we'll never have to die. And that's what the Buddha did. He realized that he could be reborn out of his nirvana and not because of birth. So right now, the Buddha exists. But he exists only because of nirvana, not because of birth. Why can't we see the Buddha? Why can't we contact the Buddha? Because this world we live in, the Buddha called samsara. This is the place where birth and death exists. And everything that's on earth right now was created. Now, some people think it was intelligent design. Some people think it was Big Bang. I personally like the spaghetti monster theory that he's behind all the creation. But whatever the reason, we're here because of birth. So how can we feel good in meditation and what can meditation do for us? It seems to me that our main problem is ignorance. The Buddha said, we're not born in original sin, we're born in original ignorance. And we do stupid things and we suffer or we're not happy. And if we can transform our ignorance into wisdom, we will never have to suffer or we will always be happy. And so how do we do that? Well, we do that through a meditation practice. The transformation of consciousness is a many lifetime <clears throat> pursuit. It said the Buddha was born at least 550 times before his final rebirth as Siddhartha Gotama, where he achieved his nirvana. In those 550 rebirths, according to the Jataka tales found in the early Buddhist canon, he achieved enlightenment many times, but he didn't achieve nirvana until his final rebirth. Now, if anyone's interested, I define enlightenment as the wisdom of emptiness. I define nirvana as the end of suffering. The Mahayana tradition, the Buddhism of China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and Tibet, focuses on enlightenment. The Buddhist tradition of Sri Lanka and Thailand and Laos, Cambodia, and a part of Vietnam focuses on nirvana. Nirvana, the end of suffering. Enlightenment, the wisdom of emptiness. The Buddha was taught how to meditate by the yogis of India. He achieved tranquility. He achieved bliss. He achieved happiness through that technique. It wasn't until he rediscovered insight meditation that he finally achieved his release from suffering in nirvana. So in Buddhism, we have insight meditation, which is called vipassana. We have tranquility meditation, which we call samatha. Tranquility and insight, compassion and wisdom. Those are the two wings of the bird of Buddhism. So I'm going to focus today on tranquility meditation, 
on Somatha meditation, the technique that was taught to the Buddha by the yogis of India. In Buddhism, there are 40, four zero, different techniques to achieve tranquility, to achieve bliss, to achieve happiness. They deal with the jhanas. There are said to be four form jhanas and four formless jhanas, eight jhanas altogether. I'm only going to be speaking about the jhanas of form today. The formless jhanas are similar, but not the same. Buddhism, more than anything else, is a path of renunciation. The Buddha said, we're already perfect. We already have as much love as we'll ever need. We already have as much generosity as we'll ever need. We already have as much wisdom as we'll ever need. What we have to do as Buddhists, though, is to get rid of our lust, so we only have love, to get rid of our greed, so we only have generosity, to get rid of our hatred and anger, so we only have loving kindness and compassion, to get rid of our delusion and ignorance, so we only have wisdom. This meditation is designed to get rid of those things that prevent our perfection as human beings. The first jhana, the first level of tranquility, has five characteristics. They are applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second jhana, the second level of tranquility, has three characteristics, bliss, happiness, and equanimity. The third jhana has two characteristics, happiness and equanimity. The fourth jhana has one characteristic, equanimity, perfect balance of mind, profound acceptance of the way things are. As you see, when we progress, we have fewer and fewer things. Buddhism is a path of simplicity, not consumption. What do these five characteristics of the first jhana mean? How can we apply them to our meditation practice? And what do they do for us? Why would anybody want to spend the time to meditate and go into a deep state of tranquility? Well, the first two characteristics are applied thought and sustained thought. So imagine yourself sitting pretty much like you are right now, bringing your attention to the tip of your nose and becoming aware of the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. One of the unique things about sensation in the body is that it always happens now. The sensation you're aware of right now cannot happen tomorrow and didn't happen yesterday. Our mind, on the other hand, is always playing with the future and regretting the past. And this meditation technique is designed to bring our mind and body together because of sensation, together in the present moment experience of our life. So we apply our mind to the sensation of breath and we hold it there. Oftentimes it's pretty boring to simply be aware of the sensation of breath. It's also very subtle and we lose the sensation as our breath changes. It gets softer, it gets harder, it gets softer. I have found that counting initially enabled me to pay attention to my breath. And my teacher suggested, 
Kusla, you're a very bad meditator. Why don't you try counting? And I said, okay, I'll try counting. And so what I did is as I exhaled, I'd say one to myself, and I'd exhale again, and I would say two. And I go up to ten, and I go back down to one, and up to ten and back down to one. Now, if I went to eleven, that meant I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't concentrating, so I went back to one. If I happened to be thinking about chocolate cake, which is one of my favorite topics, I found I wasn't paying attention, I wasn't concentrating, I had to go back to one. So initially, my meditation practice could have been called going back to one. Now, I counted my breath for two years, and I found it worked really well for me. Some people can count their breath for a few weeks and go on to the next place, which is simply being aware of the sensation of breath rather than attaching a number to the sensation of breath. I found there isn't a linear path in meditation, that some days we meditate really well and some days we can't meditate at all. And go figure, you would think that we would be training ourselves to get better and better and better, and it doesn't seem the mind works that way. In much the same way, the body doesn't work that way as well. Now, I've never done yoga. I've always felt it was, it was too difficult. So I did weightlifting. And I really liked the bench press because I could lie down to do it. What I found was on certain days I had great strength and focus. And other days I was weak and unfocused. And I couldn't put my finger on why things changed so dramatically in the gym. But it just seems to be the case. The mind works in the same way, at least in my experience. So I needed to have patience with myself. I needed to realize that I wasn't going anywhere with my meditation practice. The goal of my meditation practice was simply to meditate every day. And were there any benefits from meditating every day? Well, the second three jhanas, or the second three characteristics, excuse me, of the first jhana is, is the payoff. And what we have now, once our mind is concentrated on the object of meditation, in this case the sensation of breath, we have a great sense of pleasure and bliss in the body. We have a greater sense of happiness in the mind. And we have now started to see a profound acceptance of the way things are and equanimity about our life and the life around us. So, how does that feel? What does that, why is that the case? Well, I thought about this and, and I realized that if I went to a movie and I found it to be really exciting, say there was a car chase, I could literally forget about everything that was happening in the movie theater. You know, that, that I'd be so focused on the scene in the movie that if my feet were stuck to the ground because somebody dropped a Coke in the previous viewing of the motion picture, I, I wouldn't even be aware that my foot was stuck. Or if my arm was over the, the backrest of the chair next to me and had fallen asleep and was tingling, I wouldn't even be aware of that. I found that, that my body sort of disappeared into the concentration of watching the movie. Now, granted, watching your breath is not exciting, anywhere as exciting as watching a movie. But if we can do it with that same intensity, we can lose our body for a while. Now, what does that mean, losing your body? It means that we can merge with the universe again. 
we can leave our separateness behind. In our minds, we have this idea of where our body ends and the world begins. In fact, some of us are so good at knowing where our body ends and the world begins that we can reach over and pick up a bottle without even looking at it because we have this idea in our head of where it is. So we have this image of our place in the universe, don't we? And as we go into deeper and deeper states of concentration, that place dissolves. So now we don't know where our hand ends and the world begins. We don't know where our knees end and the world begins. And that's a very pleasant experience, especially if you're over 21. Because I found my body to be full of pleasure and joy when I was younger. But as I get older, I find my body has plenty of surprises for me. And none of them very good. <laughs> so if I can lose my body for a few moments in meditation, for me, that's a good thing. So here I am concentrating really hard really hard on my sensation of breath, and now this image of where I end and the world begins falls away, and there is this wonderful sort of lightness that occurs. And the response in my body is, is bliss and pleasure, sometimes to the point where the hair on the back of my neck just sort of rises all by itself. And I feel all these little tingly sensations, and I feel this sort of warm current happening, and I'm going, my, my, isn't this wonderful? And you can't get busted for this, can you? <laughs> so that's the first payoff. The first payoff is the deep state of concentration allows our body to feel really good. But it also allows, allows our mind to feel really good, too. And, and a sense of happiness arises, a sense of balance, a sense of acceptance, a sense of connectedness to the world around us. Now, because we have an ego, because we have a self, because we have a personality, we are separate from the world. And if you have a vocabulary of 20 or 30 or 40,000 words, you are separate in 20, 30 or 40,000 ways from the world around you. And it can be a bit intimidating and it can give you a sense of insecurity to be that separate from this world where you live. So this concentration allows you to reconnect to the world in a very special way and not be separate from it in the way you have to be because of ego and self and personality. So happiness arises in the mind. And finally, the last characteristic is this wonderful balance. You have, you're neither Christian or Buddhist. You're neither Republican or Democrat. You're neither male or female. You are come, you've come to this place in the middle where, where nothing has value or everything has value. Or it's not good and it's not bad. It's not right and it's not wrong. It's just the way it's supposed to be. Now, that kind of equanimity is profound because our ego needs to decide who we are and what we're for. That's its job. That allows us to survive. But this very subtle place that we find in our concentration exercise brings us home, brings us back to that place where we started. 
But it does it in a unique way. We don't have to be ignorant in the way we were when we were born. We can take all our knowledge with us. Our job is to transcend. So some people think it's like going back to this primordial way of being. Well, we can't ever do that. I think it's more of transcending this, this dualism and finding our home again. But being able to take our baggage to a certain extent with us and our baggage being our intellect because we need that. So here we are. We're in the first jhana. The five characteristics are applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. But we want to go to the second jhana because everybody wants to progress. Everybody wants to achieve their goal. Everybody wants to be better. So now we have to give something up. But what we need to give up now is applied thought and sustained thought. We need to have our mind simply rest on the object of meditation without any intention on our part. And with enough practice, the mind simply rests on the object of meditation. In the same way, when you break a wild horse by tying him to a pole, eventually you can take the rope off and he'll stand by the pole as if he's still tied to it. Well, our mind will stay with the sensation of breath as if it's tied to it through counting with enough practice. When that occurs, we're in the second jhana. We now have no applied thought and sustained thought. We have a greater sense of pleasure. We have a greater sense of happiness. And we have more balance. A greater sense of equanimity. Most cool. Now, a lot of people don't want to go any further than this. This is great. This is this. Your body feels good. Your mind feels good. And you can see that acceptance allows you to suffer far less. But if you want to go further, say you have a terminal illness. And say the object of your meditation or your final goal is not simply to be happy, not simply to have bliss, but literally go beyond suffering, go beyond pain. Well, now we have to go into the third jhana. And in order to go to the third jhana, we have to give something up. And what we need to give up now is our pleasure and our bliss. And this is really difficult because this is a big deal to give up our pleasure. You know, we've been told that everything we buy will lead to ultimate pleasure. So some of us have a lot of stuff hoping that ultimate pleasure will occur. Of course, it never does. And having a body is just a wonderful gift in this lifetime because it does give us so much happiness and pleasure. And why would anybody want to give that up? If we can figure out how to give up our pleasure, we will be giving up our pain. Pain and pleasure are connected. But you're going to have to have a lot of pain in order to give up your pleasure. If that's the case. If that's the case. If you've decided that sitting on the floor cross-legged for two hours is the most excruciating thing you've ever done and you wish you could give up that pain in your knee, two ways to do it. The first way to do it is to become one with the pain. Easier said than done. But if you become one with the pain, there's no one to feel it. Now, the words get a little tricky. If you're one with the pain, there is no one, no separate one to feel it. So you simply have to submerge yourself into this pain and turn that pain into sensation. 
as you investigate your body, you will find that every time you have pain and every time you have pleasure, what you're doing is interpreting the sensation. Pain and pleasure are very strong sensations, but nothing more than a sensation. And the word we give it colors a sensation. If you take your finger and put it into a, a ice-cold water, it can feel like it's being burned. So the sensation of burning and the sensation of, of, of coldness is the same. But we label it differently to make sense of it, to give it meaning. So how can I turn my pain into sensation? Well, you can do it by becoming one with the pain, so there's no separate one to feel the pain. Or you can concentrate so much, so hard, become so focused that in the movie theater, when I couldn't feel my arm falling asleep, I'm so focused on my object of meditation, I can't feel the pain in my knee. That's extreme focus, very difficult, takes a lot of practice. I'm anesthetizing the pain in one respect. I'm becoming one with the pain in the other respect. But it's all dealing with sensation and being aware of the sensation in a different way, creating a new relationship with that sensation so it's not a problem any longer. And if you're in a hospital and have a broken leg and you're able to practice this kind of meditation, you may use less medication, supplement it with meditation, which would be great because then you wouldn't lose your clarity. And one of the things a Buddhist wants to keep is their clarity so they can continue practicing. So if you've decided that you're willing to give up your pleasure and you're willing to give up your pain, you slip into the third jhana, and now you have happiness and equanimity. Great place. Wonderful place to be. But what if you want to go to the fourth jhana? What do you have to give up to go there? You have to give up your happiness. And why would anybody want to give up their happiness? If you're able to give up your happiness, you're able to give up your sadness. You'll never be sad again. But you'll never be happy again. Well, I don't know if I want to give happiness up. I mean, it's so subtle. It feels good to be happy. I like being happy. But if I could figure out why it would be useful to give up my happiness, I could give up my sadness and slip into the fourth jhana, and now I would have profound acceptance of the way things are. I would have no sadness. I would have no happiness. I would have no pain. I would have no pleasure. I could go into any situation in this world, whether it be Pakistan and the earthquake, New Orleans and the hurricane, and have profound acceptance of the way things are and help others who don't have that acceptance. Help others who are in pain. Help others who have experiencing great sense of sadness about their situation. How effective could you be as a practitioner to go into any situation and have acceptance of the way things are? Wow. And that seems to me uh, to be what happened to the Buddha when he practice this form of meditation, samatha. He went to this profound place of acceptance. But the problem was when he got up off his cushion and went back into the streets of the city, 
all his stuff came back. All his greed and his anger and his delusion. And that's when he rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to permanently cut off the roots of the fetters, the ten fetters that, that kept him in samsara, that kept him rooted there. He ended his karma, he ended his pain, he ended his suffering. He became a perfect human being. He only had love, he only had generosity, he only had compassion, he only had wisdom. This practice, this simple little practice of sitting down quietly and watching your breath allows you to look at the world in a much different way. It allows you to accept some of those people that you couldn't accept before. It allows you not to hate them quite as much. It allows you to accept yourself a little more. Because after all, that's really the first thing we need to do, isn't it? Accept ourselves so we can accept others as well. And we need to investigate ourselves. We need to have enough courage to sit down for 15 or 20 minutes a day and look at ourselves. And that's literally what we're doing in this form of meditation. We're watching our consciousness arise, exist, and pass away. And we're trying not to get caught up in all the drama of our consciousness. We're trying to get our choice back. We have lost our choice. As Americans, we are no longer citizens. We are consumers. Our choice is, do I want the blue one or the red one? You know? And that's not the kind of choice I'm talking about. I'm talking about choosing generosity over greed. I'm talking about choosing loving kindness over hatred. As we watch these mind states arise, we can label them. And to give you a perfect example of a mind state filled with greed, just the other day I was in Vaughn's supermarket on the bakery aisle, and there in front of me were the Entenmann's chocolate cakes. <laughs> and, and I said to myself, I'm buying two, one for tonight and one for tomorrow. And then I looked at this mind state and I realized it was so filled with greed that if it had been filled with generosity, I'd say I'm buying two, one for me and one for you. And so it wasn't so much, you know, saying I'm thinking bad thoughts. It was more I'm going to choose the thought I want to be. Do I want to be the thought of generosity? Do I want to be the thought of greed? That's the kind of choice I'm talking about. And we have lost that choice because we think we are our consciousness. But our consciousness is simply a product of mind and body. It's a process. It's not an event. And when you look carefully to find where you live as a human being, as a unique human being, you keep coming up empty. So in Buddhism, our ultimate reality is emptiness that we do not exist independently in the way we think we do. We are always interconnected and interdependent. It's the illusion created by self or ego that makes us think we are separate and have value, have uniqueness. Now, when I first started meditating, I wanted to kill the ego. That was the big thing in the 80s. Annihilate the ego and you will be free. But, with more thought, I realized if I was going to annihilate my ego, I'd end up like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> now, Ronald Reagan, at the end of his life, had Alzheimer's. He lost his personality. He lost his ego. 
he lost past and future. He, would, he became non-functional. So this path is not to become non-functional. This path is to become ultimately functional. So I realized it's not about killing the ego. It's about not being the ego. Using the ego as a tool, not the ego using me. Not the ego being my master. That's the freedom. That's the choice that comes out of meditation practice. And after doing yoga, I assume it's similar to weightlifting. You have a certain sense of freedom with your body. You, you're expanding its flexibility and its strength. You didn't have that freedom before the exercise. This is the freedom of consciousness, freedom of mind. That your body can be any place in this world and your mind will be free. Anwar Sadat, when he was a political prisoner, said he had more freedom as a prisoner than as the president. And here he was in jail, and he had more freedom. So we can have our freedom, no matter what our body is doing. But it requires discipline. In meditation practice, is disciplining our consciousness, creating an awareness that might not have been there before. And if it was there before, heightening that awareness, making it stronger, to simply be being aware of all the things that are going on in your head all the time. Now, that's difficult because a lot of our attention is spent thinking about past and thinking about future, you know, and making our lists and creating our goals. And all those things are really important. We don't want to lose those either. But I think it, it might be more skillful to realize all those goals in the future are being created right now. And as we sit down and write our grocery list out, it's happening right now. And when we find ourselves in the grocery store, it's happening right now. And when we finally do buy our intimate chocolate cake, it's happening right now. So nothing in our life ever happens in the future. And yet the future oftentimes is more important. Meditation practice allows us to feel comfortable with this wonderful present moment that we always live in. And I've often thought this is the same present moment that the Buddha lived in and Gandhi lived in and Abraham Lincoln lived in. The very, very same present moment. How cool is that? And yet, we can't see the present moment because we're more concerned with the change occurring rather than the unchanging quality of the present moment. And it's really not our fault at all because all our sense doors, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, are all designed to be sensitive to change. And so if it's light and dark, light and dark, we have sight. If it's sound and silence, sound and silence, we can hear. So every sense door we have takes us to the change within the present moment but can't connect us to the present moment. And what I have found in my meditation practice, when I finally silence my mind for a little while and come to that place of balance and equanimity, my heart opens up. And my heart is the one organ that can connect to the unchanging qualities of the present moment. It's that intuition that has atrophied because our intellect is so strong and so big and so muscular and decides what's real and what's not real. So this meditation practice is also designed to make you more intuitive. And for guys, that's really a cool thing because I was never intuitive being a guy. 
You know, I, it didn't make any sense to me. Why would anybody want to have feelings like that? And, and yet, when I became more intuitive, I found I was able to find parking places easier. <laughs> that there's a sense of synchronicity that occurs because your heart now connects to all this sort of, you know, magic in the world. And, and it makes no sense at all to talk about it, but it does work. You seem to leave the house at the right time and get to where you're going at the right time, not because you planned it out, because somehow, intuitively, you knew when you needed to leave and when you were going to get there. And I don't know how that works. It even takes into account car accidents on the freeway that haven't happened yet. But that's how wonderful intuition is. So this meditation that I'm talking about is designed to increase your happiness or get rid of your sadness. It's designed to increase your pleasure or to get rid of your pain. It's designed to enable you to lose your mind and come to your senses. And our whole life is being created moment by moment through those sense doors. So for a few moments every day, we can put down the pencil that writes the story of our life. Put set aside. And that story writer now goes to sleep. And we clean and defragment our hard drive. All those little bits and pieces that don't go anyplace are sort of let go of for a while. And this sort of clarity comes back. And we're able to go out into the world and maybe have a smile on our face. See a person again for the first time. You know, one of my favorite commercials, Cornflakes commercial a couple of years ago, taste them again for the first time, it said. Meditation allows us to taste our life again for the first time. It allows us to see that each moment is new and precious. That everything is the very first time. Those people you've seen for ten years, when you see them after meditation, you're seeing them for the first time again. And when you look in the mirror, you're seeing yourself again for the first time. And that's nice. The older I get, the more I realize I get into my little ruts. You know, and I just sort of see that yeah, I know how it's going to be, and I know what to expect. And that's not fun. There's no magic in that. This simple little meditation practice of sitting down and watching your breath allows you to make your life magical again, allows you to be astonished with just the simple things of finding a parking place or the taste of sushi. Oh, that tastes good. Why couldn't I taste it that way before? So it really does have a lot of benefits. But it requires us to commit a few minutes each day. And some people say, well, what is, how long should I sit? What's the best length of time? I think between 20 and 45 minutes. If you're just starting, I go for 15. You know, you don't need to sit much longer than that because you're going to be distracted by your body and your mind. And you need to get used to sitting. You need to practice. When I play my guitar, I practice every day. I still can't play very well. I sing every day. I still can't sing very well. But I practice, and I realize if there are enough years left in my lifetime, I will be able to sing and play one day. But I need to practice. I wasn't given the talent. And it, all it takes is practice. So if we can sit for 15 minutes and just struggle going back to one, it will start to happen. When it starts to get better when it starts to seem 
like it's part of your life, you can extend the time and eventually go up to 45 minutes. And that seems to be the ultimate time after talking to teachers in both the Theravada and Mahayana tradition, according to Buddhism. 45 minutes is really a good time. So you can sit for 45 minutes, take a 15-minute break, maybe sit for another 45 minutes, take a 15-minute break when you get really good at it. But to start out, maybe 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening before you go to sleep. It gives you great dreams. No more nightmares. You have some really fun dreams if you can meditate before you go to sleep. When I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, I would tell the kids, you know, sit on the end of your bed before you go to sleep and meditate. And this is the kind of meditation I want you to do. Say to yourself, as I breathe in, I relax. As I breathe out, I smile. Relax and smile. Relax and smile. And do that for five minutes. And a lot of them were able to sleep better just from that silly little five-minute, you know, meditation before they went to sleep. It brought them to a place of acceptance with the way things are. So meditation can do that for us too. Now when we get past the counting and get past the sensation, there's one more place to go. And I'll just share a little bit about that. It's the representation of breath. That inside our head, we have a representation of our breath. And we can come to that with enough practice. So first we start out with the concepts of numbers connected to our sensation of breath. Then we leave the concepts behind and simply experience the sensation. And then we leave the sensation behind and experience the representation which is inside our head. And I was so fascinated when I read that. I'm going, I'm going to try this. And I went to all my teachers and said, how do I do it? And I, well, I don't know. I don't know. We don't do it that way. Just count your breath. But I said, oh, no, this is, the, this is the final frontier. This is the third part. This is going inside your head. This is seeing what's going on. Well, I don't know. And so I picked up a book called the Vasudhi Maga, The Path of Purification, 900 pages. And I found a section. I'm seeing the representation. But it didn't tell me how to get there either. I'm going, oh, man, I can't get there. I want to know. And then I figured it out. I did it all by myself. So this is what I did. I'm not advocating you do this because this is really stupid. But this is how I figured out <laughs> how to go inside my head. That I would sit in my meditation practice and I would take the concentration and bring it to the sensation of breath. And once I was concentrated on that, I would squint my eyes really tight. And then I'd relax them. And I'd squint really tight. And then I'd relax them. And what I started to see were a thousand points of light inside. And I understand there's a, there's a physical uh, reason for that, like little neurons or something, you know. And I called, them, I called them fireflies. I started to see my fireflies. But they would just sort of like go away then really quick. And I, and I likened it to having a picture taken and they have a flash cube, and they do it right in your face. And then you close your eyes, and you can still see the flash cube exactly how it was, and eventually that after image fades off. But if somebody else shoots you in the face with a flash cube, the after image comes really back, and there it is again. So I'm creating all these little points of light by squinting my eyes, and it's like an after image, and I'm starting to watch them, and I keep track of them until they all sort of go away. And then I'd squint again, and I'd find them again, and I'd watch them until they all went away. So I did this for a couple days, 
And then I started to see stuff behind the points of light. I started to become aware of other stuff happening once I was able to look inside. And again, I, I haven't found any ancient texts that say squint your eyes. But, but this is what I did. And then I started to see all sorts of stuff. And I don't want to go into any great detail about what I saw because then I would give you expectations and you wouldn't have your own experience because each one of us has a different consciousness and different karma. But there is stuff inside your head. I know you know that already. But you can see that stuff inside your head too. And so what I started to do now was I would go to the sensation of breath and then I would do one or two squints and look for the thousand points of light. And then I would look to see what else was there, and I would just focus all my attention on the visuals. And I was able to do some breathing techniques with the abdomen and the diaphragm to increase the visuals. And in in yoga, certain types of yoga, they have fire breathing and stuff like that. Well, if you can connect your fire breathing to your meditation practice, you're going to go visit some really cool places. And there I was with bliss and rapture and happiness. And I'm, ha, 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 and I'm just seeing all these. And I'm going, man, this is so cool. And afterwards, I would just be, oh, I'm exhausted. And I'd be sort of panting because I'd been working with my breath for so long. And it was just like a giant release, sort of a cosmic orgasm, you know? And I'd walk out and I'd just be so relaxed and so happy. And so blissful. But I realized after a couple years of that, I was expending a lot of energy. I was really wearing myself out. Because I was getting high, really high, really having a good time, really exploring all these things about me and what it all meant. And having audio experiences when I'd be walking down the street and seeing things that I never thought I would see. And all these things come and happen when you go into deep states of concentration. Supernormal powers start to come. But they're absolutely useless, you know. I mean, you, you, you can't make any more money. You're not going to find any more boyfriends or girlfriends. You're not going to get a better car. But it's interesting to see all the potential we have as a human being. And now, I have to admit, after all my years of meditation, I just sit. I I don't do any fancy breathing techniques. I don't look for the points of light. I don't even watch my breath in the same way I used to. I just sit down and become transparent and let all the stuff go through me. I try to be like the river and not get caught up on the branches or the rocks in the river, but just keep flowing. And so everything sort of comes in and goes out. And if some stuff arises, I just watch it arise, and then it goes away, falls back into the flow of life, and then some more stuff comes up, and then that goes, and I just watch. But I don't identify with it. It's not me. It's just stuff happening, because I have a mind and a body. And then I get up, and I go and do my day. And then I'll sit down again and let the stuff happen again. And sometimes if I have an issue or a problem, I might do some clusters. I might throw up a thought into that stream and say, you know, um, I just can't get my Windows Media Player to work. What's wrong? 
throw that thought up, and all of a sudden, in the stream of consciousness, little clusters occur, little thought clusters. And, well, try this, so maybe you should do this. And our mind is a wonderful uh, tool to solve problems. It's a great problem solver. It has all sorts of ideas. Most of them don't work, but it has all sorts of ideas. And so, if I, that was my intention, I would go and try some of those things and see if they worked. But I have great clarity in that, just throwing one little problem up and just letting it, the mind sort of work around it. You know? Very cool. So I have found meditation has allowed me not to be more intelligent because intelligence needs knowledge. And this doesn't create more knowledge. But I found meditation allows me to have more wisdom because meditation gets rid of my ignorance and gets rid of my delusion. Now, I I make a a distinction between that, wisdom and knowledge, because there are a lot of people that are really stupid but very knowledgeable, (laughs) you know? And there are some people that are really wise and have no formal education at all. So meditation is going to make you wise. It's not going to make you knowledgeable. And your wisdom will be a benefit to all those who come in contact with you. Your wisdom will also allow you to see how important having a physical practice is as well, whether it be weightlifting or running or yoga, that because we have a mind and body, we need to exercise both. That's it. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like more information on True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California, please go to their website, trueyoga.com. That's trueyoga.com. If you'd like more information on Buddhism, please visit my website, urbandharma.org. Quite a few pages put together for you to better understand Buddhism and its practice. And if you'd like more information on me, please go to kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. Well, that's it. And until next time, until the next podcast, remember, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.